One of the principles that we emphasize here at Cole over and over again is that we are all in ministry. Our goal is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You are the saints. And so every one of you is called to ministry, maybe not full-time ministry, but wherever God's placed you, he's gifted you and he's given you a sphere of ministry, people he wants you to influence for his kingdom. So that's the plan. That's what God designed. That's the goal. But it raises a question. How do you know when your ministry is successful? Maybe it's ministering to your kids. Maybe it's to your spouse or a neighbor or a friend or whatever. How do you know if it's successful? Because we tend to see so little results often in whatever our ministry is. And the world around us keeps telling us that, hey, success in ministry means big numbers, lots of people responding, lots of excitement, lots of money and programs and all that. And so we look at that and and the world keeps trying to squeeze us into its mold and say that's what success is. My brother and I used to joke a lot when we were in college because uh, he used to say, yeah, my spiritual gift is the gift of remnancy. Because every time I teach a Bible study, it dwindles down to the faithful remnant. <laughs> Could his ministry still be successful? You know, again, in our, in our mindset in this world, we think, no, that's not success. Success is it's growing, it's big, it's numbers, it's all those things. But I want to suggest to you this morning that those are worldly criteria and that the Bible has a far different perspective on what a successful ministry actually looks like. And it only makes sense if you think about the Scriptures. I mean, think about people throughout the Bible. If success is numbers, then most of them were failures. You look at Jeremiah, for example. Jeremiah faithfully taught the word for 40 years in Israel. And yet we have no record really of anyone responding to him. Based on results, he was a failure, right? Based on the scriptures, he was a great, successful man of God. What about the Apostle Paul? Yeah, he planted a lot of churches. People were converted. But, you know, most of those churches ended up in schisms and battles and struggles and fights. And at the end of his life, at the end of... 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, everybody has deserted me. So based on worldly criteria, Paul was a failure. But by biblical criteria, he was a wonderful success. Based on worldly criteria, numbers and all, Jesus was a failure. Over time, his ministry got smaller and smaller, so there were only 12 that were left. And then when he got arrested... They all ran away. So I guess Jesus was a real failure, huh? Well, if you apply the criteria that our world says to apply, you see, applying worldly criteria can be dangerous for us. And we can end up feeling like failures, like, gee, my ministry is a total washout, and I guess God doesn't really want to use me, because we apply the wrong criteria. And I want to encourage you this morning that the criteria the Bible gives us are very different than the results we can see in people's lives or the numbers of people that are coming. So what should we use to determine if our ministry is successful? Whatever ministry that might be, a little Bible study, 
little discipleship group, having coffee with a friend, investing in your kids, at work, reaching out to a coworker, whatever your ministry might be, whatever sphere God has placed you, what criteria should we use to determine if a ministry is successful? Well, let's look at Second or First Thessalonians chapter two this morning, and I believe Paul gives us those criteria. And it's interesting to me that as he gives us criteria in these first twelve verses, he doesn't talk at all about results. Now he does go on in the rest of the chapter to talk about some of his impact, but he does not begin there. That's not the most important thing to him in defining a successful ministry. It has far more to do about with us than how it affects other people. So Paul writes these verses because he's really concerned about the Thessalonican church. Now remember, we saw last week, he was only there for a few weeks, three weeks, maybe a little longer, but that's all. He hadn't had a chance to really teach them the principles of ministry. So he writes this section because he wants them to understand what true successful ministry really looks like in God's kingdom. So it begins this way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't empty. It wasn't worthless. And in the NIV it says, our coming to you was not a failure. In other words, our ministry wasn't a failure. In fact, it was successful. So he wants them to know why it was successful. He says it wasn't a failure. Now think about it for a minute. He went to Thessalonica. He wasn't there very long. He got run out of town. And yet, he says, our ministry was successful. Why was that? Well, let's look at the principles he gives us. I think the first one he gives us is, Because the word was proclaimed, the truth was proclaimed. Notice verse 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Remember, he went to Philippi first in Macedonia. He taught the word. He was arrested, beaten, thrown into jail, he and Silas. God did a miracle in letting him out of jail. But in all of that, he experienced tremendous persecution. He ended up fleeing for his life. He went to Thessalonica. It was very difficult there. He taught the word in the face, in the midst of much opposition, he says. And he says, that's what makes my ministry successful with you. Because the word was taught. The word was spoken. Yeah, the results were really mixed. But he said, what made it successful, the reason it wasn't a failure, is because we taught the word. We said the truth. Like Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. When it's convenient and you get a response and when it's inconvenient and you get no response. See, it doesn't matter what the response is. True, effective, successful ministry is just, are you sharing the word? Are you sharing the word? Are you sharing the word? If you are, then regardless of the response, God's glorified and the ministry is successful. Again, Jeremiah, he kept speaking the truth, even though he got a lot of oppression and difficulty and struggle in the midst of that. 
And he was a successful minister for the Lord. Chapter 20 of Jeremiah, he says this, I become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction because of the word of the Lord. For me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. He says, God, you keep giving me a message and the people don't like it. (laughs) It's tough. So he said, but if I say, I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary of holding it in and I cannot endure. So Jeremiah says, hey, the response is bad, so I'd rather not say anything. (laughs) But you know what? I can't help it. The gospel's got a hold in my heart. And so he speaks the truth. And that, again, is successful ministry. And Jeremiah is a great example of that. When I was in college, or doing a college ministry up at the U of I, fresh out of seminary, showed up to do a college ministry, decided, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll put signs up all over campus. I'll invite people to a study in Romans and just see if they want to learn and try to make it attractive and all that. So I was excited, praying about it. Lord, bring who you want. I couldn't wait. Two people showed up. I thought, what a failure. You know, I put all this effort into it. I prayed, God, what is this? Do you even want me in ministry? Two people showed up. A young man and a young woman. I thought, well, I guess we'll study Romans. That's why they came. (laughs) We started studying the book of Romans together and God just began to do a work. That young woman became, in essence, part of our family. She actually lived with us for a while and I had the privilege of doing her wedding a little while later and just seeing God work in her life in tremendous ways. The young man became part of a discipleship group that I was teaching and we had a long-term relationship and I was able to encourage him in the Lord. Now, in a lot of ways, that looks like it would be a complete failure. But see, God said, teach the word anyway. And God did a work through that. You see, successful ministry is the word word taught. Is it taught? And trust God with the results. It doesn't matter where you are, whether you're meeting somebody for coffee, whether you're investing in your kids, whether you're loving your spouse or whatever. Bring the word into it. It doesn't mean you have to have a formal Bible study, but it does mean you're willing to speak the truth. You're willing to share the reality of the scriptures. And if you are doing that, speaking the truth in love, it's a successful ministry, no matter what it is. Then he goes on to talk about the next next criteria for successful ministry, which has to do with your motives, pure motives. Notice what he says in verses 3 through 6. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. So in this section, Paul goes on to say, I want to give you another criteria for 
successful ministry. And what's he talking about? He's talking about his motives as he came to the Thessalonians. And notice he creates a contrast. He said, there's one way to do ministry, and it's seeking men, seeking glory from men, pleasing men. And the other way to do ministry is pleasing God, seeking glory from Him, seeking His approval, not men's approval. You see, those are two completely different approaches to ministry, though what you do might look exactly the same. But he says real successful ministry is where you're learning to seek God's approval, not man's. But see, we all naturally seek men's approval, don't we? And yet we commit ourselves to seek God's. And, and honestly, in whatever ministry we are, we would probably very sincerely say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm seeking to please God. I'm not seeking to please men. But Paul gives us some examples to kind of dig a little deeper to look at our motives a little deeper and maybe suggest to us maybe some ways that we actually are seeking to please men rather than God. Ways in which we are really needing people's approval, wanting to be liked, wanting to be respected by people rather than really seeking God's approval. And he gives us some examples of that. Notice some of the descriptions he used. Verse 3 For our exhortation did not come from error. From error. This is uh, the idea of of willing to compromise the truth so you don't offend somebody. Compromising the truth. You might say part of the truth, but not all of it, because you really don't want to offend somebody because you so much want them to like you. He said if your motive is pleasing men, you're going to tend to fall into error if things get touchy said, but we didn't do that. We didn't do that. I I met a pastor once of a large church and he said, in a small group we were talking about ministry and he said, you know, I've been at this church eight years and, and I can't talk about sin yet. I can only teach about love because my people just aren't ready for that yet. But hopefully down the road I'll be able to start talking about that part of the Bible. You know, I can't speak to his motives, but I know if, if I were doing that, it would be because I want to be liked. <laughs> it wouldn't really be for their sake, what they can handle or not. It would be for my sake, because I would want to be liked to say what they want to hear. So we need to watch that and make sure we're not speaking error and just giving people what they want to hear. He says, if we're pleasing men, we also speak from error or impurity. The idea of impurity is kind of mixed motives. And you, you'll see this, I think one of the best indications when I fall into that is when I teach and I'm so worried about their response. And, I, and I'm worried about how they're responding. If they don't respond well, I get angry and resentful. If that happens, it's very clear that I'm speaking from impurity. It's not to please God, it's to please me or the people around me so they'll like me. Then he goes on in verse 3 to say, or we didn't speak... By way of deceit. Okay, another indication that we're pleasing men, not God, is that you begin to speak with deceit. Deceit is the idea of pretending. It's, it's saying one thing but meaning another. And when people are this way and they're talking to you, you kind of sense, you sense that there's something behind it. The person isn't quite telling you the whole truth that there's mixed motives behind it. You know, like the, 
the letter or the speaker, whoever you might hear that says, hey, you send me $100, I guarantee you God will double it. Well, that sounds good, but why are they, what are the, what's he really saying? He's saying, I want you to send me your money. Period. He's not really doing it for their good. Otherwise, he'd send you $100 so that he could get it doubled, right? I mean, really, it's deceit. And it happens all the time, and we need to watch that. We need to make sure that we're not doing that because it's a clear indication we're pleasing men or ourselves, not God. Then in verse 5, he says, For we never came with flattering speech. Again, if you're pleasing men, you're going to flatter them because you're going to want something from them. You want them to like you. You want them to respect you. So you're going to go overboard in flattering them. And you know when someone's doing that, right? It doesn't quite feel right when they're flattering you. You feel used. You feel kind of manipulated. Well, he says, watch that. That's an indication you're pleasing men, not God. A couple more things he says. Verse 5, nor did we come with a pretext for greed. This is putting on a mask. This is acting like you're there for the other person's sake, but really you want to get something from them. I had a friend who came to me one time and he said, oh, I missed you. I haven't talked to you. We hadn't talked for a long time. I really want to get together and just get involved in your life and hear how you're doing. And I thought, great. So we got together and it was pretty clear after a while that he had a money-making scheme that he was trying to recruit me for. And you just feel bad. You feel dirty. But too often, ministry gets used for that as a pretext for greed. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. That's pleasing men, not God. That's seeking approval from men, not God. And then finally in verse 6, he says, even though we as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. See, if you're pleasing men, you will tend to pull rank pressure others, try to get what you want from them. And if you, if you can't get it any other way, you'll pull rank and say, hey, I'm God's, God told me that you need to do this. Well, now, wait a minute. Is the Holy Spirit in the other person or not? You know, if I'm pleasing God, I can trust God to work in their life. I don't have to pull rank. All these are indications, just hints, that we ought to look at our own hearts and say, what is my motive? Am I pleasing God? Men, or am I pleasing God? Because if we're pleasing God, there'll be some indications too, as we see in this passage. Notice verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God, we speak. This word for approved was used when, in, when they made pottery, and they would fire it in the kiln, and it would come out in those days. And if it didn't have any cracks and it made it through, they would stamp on the bottom, approved. Dokame is the word. Approved. And what Paul says is he says, you know what? I've been approved by God. Even before I stepped into ministry, God says, I chose you. You are my man or woman of God and I've stamped you with approval. And see, therefore, I don't need approval from men. That's what Paul says. You see, isn't that a beautiful picture? It frees you from having to worry about what people think or whether they like you or approve of you and... Because ministry is hard and people are not going to like you a lot of times. But if your approval is from God, God approves me, then you're free. Then he says, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. He's talking about stewardship. You see, a mark that you're really pleasing God, not men, is that you have the sense that 
You know, my ministry and the people I'm ministering to is simply a gift from God. It's not because of me. And so, Lord, I just want to be faithful to what you've given me to do. Isn't that a wonderful attitude? And it's freeing. And when someone comes to you with that attitude, you know, wow, I don't feel manipulated at all. I feel ministered to. And then finally, he says this. Verse 4 and 5, at the end of 4, he says, But, we don't please men, but God who examines our hearts. And then verse 5, we don't come with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Paul has a very clear picture that it's God who examines his heart. God who is his witness. God is the one who he is watching him. So he doesn't really worry about what people think. He's freed up from that. So these are some indications, if you have the sense that God really approves of me so it doesn't matter what people think and if they approve of me, and you have this idea that, wow, I'm just a steward of what God's given me, and you have this sense that God is the one who's watching me, He's the one I want to please, then it's probably a good indication that you're growing in your ability to have a better motive, a motive that says, I'm pleasing God, not men. So he says that's successful ministry when you're growing in that. Not perfect, but you're growing, learning to please God and not men. To seek glory from God, not men. And then third criteria for a successful ministry Paul gives is in verses 7 through 12. And that's having loving methods. The right methods in how you're coming across. How you're ministering. How you're caring for others. And in these verses 7 through 12... He uses an analogy of mother and father. He says, successful ministry, you love like a mother and you love like a father. And he expands on these. He gives some wonderful pictures. First, he begins with loving as a mother. Now, these are generalizations and, and they're not, um, you know, they don't apply maybe in every case the, the way you mothered or fathered, but I think they're really reflective of a mother's heart and a father's heart in his description. And I think they're a marvelous description. And I think we can all relate to it, I think, because oh, why don't you raise your hand if you had a mother or a father at some point in your life? Okay. About half of you. Makes me wonder. Uh, <laughs> okay. So you can relate to this, right? So he says in verse 7, But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. He says, Paul says, We came to you and ministered among you gently like a nursing mother. Now think for a minute. Is there anything more tender and compassionate and beautiful than a young mother with her infant baby. What a marvelous picture of love and affection and gentleness and tenderness of keeping warm, of comforting. You see, it's, it's and focusing on that child. Everything she is is tuned in to meeting the needs of that child and caring for that child. Paul says, that's the way we came to you. When you were little, and you fell down and got hurt or crashed on your bike, who did you go to for comfort? Most of us went to our moms because they were the tender ones. You know, they would say, oh, are you okay? Did you get a (laughs) boo-boo? 
Do you need a Band-Aid? You know, and Dad's going, hey, get back on the bike. <laughs> you know, you can do this. Come on. Don't be scared. See, there's a difference. He goes on to say, we were tender, having so fond an affection for you. This fond affection, this sense of, I care about you so much. This, this the way a mother approaches, you know, not using the person for their own ends, but rather investing in them and caring for them, caring about the relationship so much. This accident that was prayed for, little uh, Laramie, who's 16, who was in the passenger seat, and they're driving down the freeway, and the car in front of them had kicked up this big brass pipe, probably 25 pounds, and it was flipping through the air. It hit the hood and ripped a hole in the hood and then smashed through the windshield. He's sitting in the passenger side, and it came and it hit him right in the chest and stuck in the roof. And it was miraculous that it didn't actually puncture his side. It broke several ribs, and he has a partially collapsed lung, but he's going to be okay. But it was miraculous, and and God protected him. So he was taken to the hospital, and he'll spend a day or two there. But sitting by there, or standing by there, his bed in the emergency room as we're talking, you know, mom and dad are on the other side, and dad and I are having this lively conversation and sharing stories and talking. And Christina, his mom is holding his hand and staring at him the whole time. And she's sort of half listening to us, but you could tell where her focus was. It's on her son. And everything's tuned in. Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? You see, that's the heart of a mother that Paul's describing here. This fond affection, this care, this... And I love this in verse 8. He says, We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own souls, literally. Our own souls. Because you had become very precious to us. Beloved of us. Again, isn't that a wonderful description of a mother? A mother imparts her very soul to her children and becomes so intertwined with them that if they hurt, she hurts in a deep way. That's what a mother does. She imparts herself to her children. And then in verse 9 says this, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Again, isn't that a description of motherhood? Laboring night and day for the sake of her children. I mean, who gets up at night? Well, I I did when Jeannie kind of kicked me out of bed. (laughs) But I didn't even hear the kids most of the time. But she's just tuned in. And as soon as they cried, she was out of bed. You see, that's the heart of a mother. And Paul says, this is how we ministered to you. Paul, this tough minister of the gospel, said this is successful ministry. It's ministry that's done like a mother where there's this fond affection, this tuning into the needs, this, are you okay? Where the relationship is central and primary to everything that happens. That's successful ministry. So the question is, as you're ministering to that other person, do they know that you really love them? Do they know that? That's successful ministry if they do. 
And then he goes on to take on the analogy of the father. Qualities of a father and how a father loves. It's still love, but it's different a little bit. Father tends to be less focused on the relationship and meeting needs. And a father tends to be much more focused on helping the child walk. Here you've got a picture of father and a grandfather helping the child walk. Learn to walk through life, through the midst of just normal life. You see, that's what a father tends to focus on. How are you walking? So listen to what Paul says about that, verse 10 through 12. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that with the goal that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What a contrast, huh, with motherhood. But it's very accurate as a generalization. As dads, we tend to be more focused on how are you walking. And a couple of things he highlights here in verse 9, he says, you know, our behavior, or verse 10, excuse me, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved. He's talking about modeling. As dads, we tend to be very aware of our kids are watching us. And a good father is seeking to model behavior, model of trusting the Lord, model caring for him, model, model um, doing the right thing, making the right choices. And as a young father, I became very aware of this because any time I stepped out of line or fudged a little bit on the truth or whatever, my kids would pick up on it right away. <laughs> and it made me very aware that they're watching everything I'm doing. And they're imitating what I'm doing. So a good father models. And Paul says, that's what we did with you Thessalonians. We modeled the truth. We lived this kind of life. And when he talks about blameless, I don't think he's talking about that we did it perfectly. No father does. But I think he's saying we sought to do what was right. And when we blew it, we were quick to apologize and make it right. That's a good father says that's how we ministered with to you. And in verse 11, he says, we also as a father exhorted and encouraged and implored each one of you to walk in a manner worthy as a father. See, a father uses encouraging words, imploring words to try to encourage our children to do what's right, to walk in the way that God wants us to. What a beautiful picture of fatherhood, really. This picture of I'm, I'm modeling and I'm encouraging you to learn to walk in the right way, to walk with God, to trust him. I like this song. It's a country western song by Holly Dunn. It's called Daddy's Hands. Read a couple lines. He said, she says, I remember Daddy's hands, how they, how they held my mama tight and patted my back for something done right. Daddy's hands were soft and kind when I was crying Daddy's hands were hard as steel when I'd done wrong. Daddy's hands weren't always gentle, but I've come to understand there is always love in Daddy's hands. It's a picture of fatherhood. That's similar to what Paul's describing here. And what a beautiful picture of ministry. 
He says, we invest in lives like a mother. We get involved in, in the, our child's lives or whoever we're ministering to. And we love them and we make sure they know their love. They experience God's love through us. So we ministered like a mother, but we also ministered as a father, always encouraging you to not be satisfied with where you are in life and in your walks with God, but encouraging you to move on. And folks, these are wonderful criteria for thinking about our ministry with one another. Whoever you're ministering to, do they know that you love them no matter what they do? But at the same time, are you encouraging them with the word to walk in a manner worthy that God has called them to, to keep moving ahead, to repent of things and begin to walk more closely with the Lord and trust Him. Paul's picture here is really that we're family. And successful ministry means we treat each other in this way, as a mother, as a father. And I think most of us overemphasize one or the other. We're really good at making people feel loved, but maybe we never share truth with them and exhort them to do what's right. Or we're all about exhortation, but we don't love them very well and make them feel completely accepted in our love for them. So these are things that we need to consider and strive for if we are to have a successful ministry. You see, successful ministry is not about numbers. It's not about a big growing ministry. It doesn't matter how many people that you're ministering to. Successful ministry means that you are learning to keep the word as part of it. That you're learning to have your motives be focused on pleasing God, not people. And that you are learning to love both as a mother with affection and as a father with exhortation. That's what true success is. It says nothing about results or how the person's responding. It's about how you are going about following the Lord in loving others. And it doesn't matter if there's a thousand people you're ministering to or one person. If you are doing these things and striving for them, you are successful in your ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and the beautiful picture it gives us of what successful ministry really is like. Help us, Lord, to not get caught up in the world's way of thinking, that thinking to be successful we have to have this huge impact and lots of numbers or whatever. But help us rather to be faithful people like Jeremiah, like Paul, like Jesus, who continue to do what's right even when it's hard sometimes and people don't respond well. Make us successful ministers of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.